This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by round two of the Breakfast Challenge. Carson, some of our uh, stalwart favorite brands that we've been working with for years and years. This is like picking between your kids, Dunkin' versus Wendy's. Yeah, we got tough choices here. We got Wendy's, the new kid on the block, entering and kind of declaring the breakfast wars have begun, and Dunkin', the, the, the old guard here, the standard bearer when it comes to, to coffee and donuts. And we have Dunkin' Donuts in this office just about every Friday. Just about every Friday, I make a stop and bring some. Some, some donuts and yeah. some coffee. So what do you think? The sandwiches? Uh, you know, the Wendy's, I think, did a really good job. I, I you know, It was interesting to see. They did not pick sort of one lane and say, we're going to we're gonna do that. They've kind of taken a shot across the bow at every other competitor's kind of breakfast fastball. So we've got we've got a couple of chicken choices that are pretty darn good, you know, going at Chick-fil-A. You've got a couple of, you know, a couple of different offerings here um, that are kind of going at right at McDonald's or, or, or Burger King. What, what, what do you think? I, I The chicken for me was the highlight. I thought it was really, really good. So I'll go next. You know, I like it all. I mean, it's breakfast food. I love everything about breakfast. So they're all great. I'm not a big fan of breakfast sandwiches on a bagel. I like breakfast sandwiches. I like cold-cut lunch-type sandwiches on a bagel. I kind of liked Wendy's. Had a couple new things in there. And so, you know, we'll have to eat our way through this pod and, and, and figure out how we're going to come down on our voting. a terrible Friday. I know. That's Franklin, what are, you, what, are you, what are you looking at? What are you eating there? I like it all. I like it all, but I'll tell you what I really like. I like the Beyond uh, Sausage at Duncan, which is a little bit of a curveball, but uh, but I love that. Um, but Wendy's looking does that good. Mean, does that mean it's not real? The Beyond is the plant-based sausage? Yes, wow. yes. Delicious. It's delicious. You need to try that. Heresy. Cold. I know. It's like, I don't know if I can do that, man. That's, that's kind of sacrilege. Anyway, we're going to eat our way through the show, and uh, we'll kind of vote at the end here. So uh, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, well, it's official now. We are all freaking out about the coronavirus, and rightfully so. Consumers, employers, employees, and markets are getting extremely nervous and trying to figure out what they should be doing next and, of course, not doing. We'll talk about the challenges to operators as they try to navigate some increasingly dangerous waters. And a new study is out from the Pew Research Center that says the vast majority of young people, our employees in other words, think the economic system is rigged for the wealthy few. How can we be an industry of opportunity if the vast majority of our workforce doesn't see it the same way. We'll talk about that. And Super Tuesday is over, and so are the candidacies of Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Michael Bloomberg, and now Elizabeth Warren. How will a two-man race between Biden and Sanders impact operators and the stock market? We'll kick that around as well. We'll talk about those stories and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my aligned partners, Franklin Coley and Carson Chandler. And Franklin, you know, this is a kind of a niche podcast we have, and we talk about issues that are important to the industry, and oftentimes they're not kind of in the national mainstream. But this week is very different. Uh, the biggest issue in the country and in the world right now has the potential to really land right square in the middle of the restaurant industry, right, right in the middle of our dining rooms. And I'm talking about coronavirus. You know, we've seen this week... Uh, a number of major, you know, restaurant stocks take a big dive uh, as part of the, the larger market dive. And restaurants are particularly vulnerable parts of the industry when it comes to these kind of public health issues. Franklin, what's going on out there and what should the industry be doing? Not only not from an operational perspective, I think most people in the association world uh, has been good about educating people on what to do inside the four walls of their restaurant. But what does this mean for us outside 
the four walls of the restaurant. Yeah, and I think you're leading me towards a conversation about the public policy space, but I would say just in terms of the operational piece, which we're not going to get into too much here, but um, a lot of restaurants have been right to communicate the operational changes externally. So not only within their workforce, but also to customers of the broader public. Starbucks comes to top of mind, which announced that they will be um, essentially adding a 1% labor cost to their to their books, which equates to like 30 minutes of extra time per worker to do extra wipe downs in the stores. That's obviously among other things. So, you know, communicating that information to your workers as well as externally, I think is important. And having kind of a, a war room mentality, a war room set up to deal with any issues that may arise in a restaurant, you know, if a worker's sick or a customer's sick so that you can handle that. And certainly all companies have crisis communications plans are built around these types of incidents. You need to dust those off and you need to refresh those and you need to be prepared with those. And and, and the industry associations, uh, you know, have jumped in and are providing uh, operators with all kinds of, of facts and tips and, and uh, resources. And uh, obviously the National Restaurant Association uh, engaged in that. American Hotel and Lodging Association has been doing a really good job in this space. And one resource I'd, I'd point out to people on the uh, National Retail Federation web uh, website is a an, an entire dedicated space, uh, coronavirus resources for retailers. It's got a lot of up-to-the-minute data on where we are and best practices and all that kind of stuff. So I would, I would point, from an operational perspective, point folks uh, to that resource as well. So that's the operational side. But, you know, th- this becomes a communications exercise too because you need to be communicating to the public, giving confidence that your operations, you know, are in order. So let's let's kind of pivot off of that and go towards this, uh, this broader conversation. And I would say that probably the majority of folks' resources are focused on this operations piece right now. It's probably rightfully so, um, but there are some other considerations in the space that we typically work in, and that is the issue management public policy sphere. Very quickly this week, elected officials and advocates kind of began linking coronavirus and the issue of paid sick leave. We had opinion pieces or editorials in the New York Times, Washington Post, The Hill, and probably 18 other outlets basically linking those issues and saying that the service industry, the hospitality industry in particular, was um, a breeding ground, was creating an environment due to the lack of paid sick leave that could really spread, that, that could expedite the spread of this virus. That's tough. We've seen this type, this line of argument in the conversation go this direction almost every flu season for the past Five years of paid sick leave has been debated, but now the public's attention and focus is much sharper. This obviously, there's a lot of you know people are dying, you know, so so there's a lot of legitimate concerns here. And anyway, we're going to see continued drumbeating conversation in that space. We've already seen legislatures start to act. Governor Cuomo in New York has amended the paid leave, paid sick leave bill there to require employers to compensate workers and not fire them or not retaliate against them 
for taking time off to essentially self-quarantine when they uh, test positive for coronavirus. We have in New Hampshire, injected into the paid sick leave debate there, coronavirus became part of the debate. I think it was in the Senate this week. And so, you know, Virginia, we have a paid sick leave bill, and I can't imagine that this isn't going to be part of that conversation at some point there. So I'll stop there, Mr. Kefoffer, but I know that you're primary concern, and it was very painful, as you brought up this point, the end of last week, the beginning of this week, that this is where this conversation was going to go, to then see opinion piece and editorial board after editorial board start fulfilling your prophecy. But the prophecy, uh, I like that. But I think one of the concerns <clears throat> you flagged to me is, oh gosh, we're going to have one of our clients or one of our industry reps or some franchisee is not going to understand the backdrop and the context here. And they're going to step in front of a TV camera and make an impassioned argument against paid sick leave in some state capital. Yeah, and, and we have, you know, for the first time, we have paid sick leave bills that predated the corona outbreak. We talked about pre- paid sick leave in this industry for years and years and years. And then the, 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 the focus switched to uh, family and medical leave. And kind of organically, we're back on the subject again, before the corona outbreak of paid sick leave. And I was having cold sweats at night thinking there was some state restaurant association lobbyist or chain lobbyist that was had their head up there, you know what, and sitting in a state legislature arguing against paid sick leave with the backdrop of this coronavirus. And I was just mortified that we'd be making class action assholes out of ourselves. And, and uh, I hope that hasn't happened. What, what we are is a really big inflection point here where we have an, you know, the industry has an opportunity to change direction on this issue. And we can, A, continue to uh, be on the wrong side of history in this issue, continue what we do on paid sick leave, A. B, we can hide for the next weeks, months, rest of this legislative session and try to let these winds blow over us. Or C, we could say, enough. Is there a pathway to a national solve on paid sick leave, much like we've talked about doing on paid family leave? And is this the opportunity? Has it gotten so bad against the the backdrop of a global pandemic that we may think about changing our kind of industry posture on the issue of paid sick leave? I don't know which of those options we will take, A, B, or C. If I were going to Vegas, I know which one I'd bet on. But I think we are in a very precarious position. And I don't want to you know, be too alarmist because we don't know this corona thing could kind of be past its intensity in, in, in a few months and we go back to normal. Or we could just be on the edge of something really big here. Either way, the subject over the next couple of months is going to be about coronavirus. It's going to be how you get it. And the first time that there is some employee of some notable restaurant company that is test positive for this, it is going to be Katie bar the door on that company, this industry, and the and we better be ready as an industry for that conversation. Or even a customer comes in and anything associates other customers. This disease with a brand and or, the industry, it will be a wildfire. Or, and I don't want to talk about this now, I want to talk about this at the end, a delivery driver that works for a third-party company that has no connection to the restaurant. The restaurant has you know, no control over anyway. But, but I want to come back to that conversation later. At the federal level, if the industry came out in favor of, it could be done in such a way that you could be pushing, let's say, five days paid sick leave per year that would go in excess of all your state and local mandates with a tax credit offset 
you know, so it's a bit more or less neutral to employers in a federal preemption. That's a policy that you would think would would make sense, right? Could make sense to employers on the balance sheets for a number of reasons. So there are ways to do this, you know, that that don't necessarily put a, a big mandate on the employer community. I will tell you this: the other headline this week that I, I didn't that I didn't mention yet was Governor Bashir's came out in Kentucky and said, "Look, and Kentucky, you know, by the numbers and they laid out the numbers." has um, one of the lowest rates of private sector employer-offered paid sick leave programs, essentially. So in Kentucky, workers, they just don't have paid sick leave by and large. You know, I think it's like 60% of workers do or something like that. It's well below the the national average. And Governor Bashir said, I'm calling, because he he can't pass paid sick leave because the legislature won't, won't approve it. But he said, I'm calling on employers for the next few months to adjust their policies and make for flexible paid sick leave policies so that people don't feel like they have to come into work, that they can go home. And he, Bashir's is, is not really a flamethrower. I mean, he's not no, a... No, he's pretty mainstream centrist. Yeah, and he's, you know, he, he would be considered kind of a... Dixiecrat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but you can see how other governors in other states are going to basically take that same line and they're going to beat on us and employers. And you can see how this conversation can play out over some months. And so we've got to come up with some sort of response. I mean, sticking our head in the sand, it may work again and just kick the can down the road. There's a good chance that it that it's not going to, that we are going to end up owning some terrible tragedy. And and, th- and this issue in particular, even our most business-friendly funded research organizations cannot come up with any meaningful smoking gun uh, financial impacts of paid sick leave. As, as much as we've tried, we have not been able to come up with data that really says there's a significant cost associated with it. So it's even dumber that we bleed this political capital on this stupid issue. It makes me crazy. And here we are just walking right into it. And we're a couple days, weeks, months from just, I mean, this last week, Franklin, you mentioned Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, just here we go, and making the connection between food and, and virus and consumers and industry and blah, 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 blah. And we are the, I think we're on the tip of a very slippery, slippery slope here that could go very bad very quickly. And all it's going to take is one outbreak and one positive test at a notable brand, and it is going to be on. And we'll have no, we'll have no defenders. Yeah, and that, that was a good close, but there's one more issue I want to touch on. It's this delivery piece um, because we have legislation in California that would establish you know liability essentially for delivery drivers and require that they have food handling certificates. And uh, and then we, we had Del Vitorini from Rhode Island to come on and talk about the legislation they're running there. This is still a, a gray area in a lot of, a lot of places, and, and the delivery drivers don't necessarily have any food handling training or or anything so as we have moved towards off-premise delivery and and reliance on third-party delivery we are now putting food in the hands of people and their cars that you know there's really no control over and so for me that's scary because most of the time they're not going to distinguish between the customer and the public's not going to distinguish between DoorDash and the restaurant that put the put the food in the DoorDash car. And so it just highlights what we've been talking about for a long time is we need to get ahead and think through these 
delivery, these new economy-related issues like delivery and liability and legal liability related to food safety, but also workplace employment law and, and, and everything else. And so it just seems we have this freight train coming down the tracks towards us that is coronavirus. And we have this, I would say, pretty significant weakness in terms of the delivery space and lack of control there. And that could be a, a major problem as well. And I'm sure a lot of smart people in a lot of corporate headquarters are, are thinking through that now. So uh, with that, I guess we put a bow in this and say, look, the backdrop is, and the conversation here is is relatively perilous. The restaurants are, are uniquely kind of exposed in this conversation. And I know everyone is focused on operationally getting their, their house in order and getting their game plan in order. But there's this political conversation that's gearing up. It's also going to be part of that backdrop. You need to be thinking through that. And when you're thinking about do I close a store down? When I close a store down, do I send my workers home? Do I pay them? What does that look? All that stuff is going to fit into this political backdrop as well. And it's going to be part of that conversation. And do restaurant companies for areas that are quarantine shut down? Do they want to send in food with the American Red Cross or something? You know, there's other opportunities around this conversation as well. It's worth mentioning, but you need to be thinking through all that now. And hopefully we're providing some some greater context and background to some of the, the pushes and pulls on companies. And I, and I think you know, the window for, for the industry, the window is closing fairly rapidly on our, our opportunity to say something uh, meaningful in this space in terms of our commitments to our you know, customers and our employees and safety and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's, it's kind of getting drowned out a little bit out there. And then the, the, and then the window will op- open on the opportunity for us to do something meaningful in this space. And I suspect, you know, just in the last 48 hours, we've had two two or three notable governors weigh into this. Uh, in the next two to three weeks, you're going to see, I mean, we're going to see hearings on Capitol Hill next week. And th- there is going to be a, you can see a scenario where there is a bipartisan cacophony of noise coming at this industry to get to the table on something meaningful in this space. And we need to get our ducks in a row very, very quickly. So Franklin, very often, as our listeners know on this podcast, we see interesting studies and uh, reports that we think are are meaningful, and we pass those along. And one of our institutions that we watch very closely is the Pew Research Center. We've talked a lot about their findings, respected organization on both sides of the aisle. Uh, they have another report out uh, this week, and the headline of the report is, Most Americans Point to Circumstances, Not Work Ethic, for Why People Are Rich or Poor. And while interesting, it has a lot of ramifications for not only the employer community, but kind of public affairs and, and messaging and how the industry presents itself. Franklin, dive into what the key kind of findings of the report and then what the ramifications of those findings are. So part A, what are the big the big ahas from the study? Yeah, now, the big, I think, findings are essentially, as you said, that uh, a majority of Americans, two-thirds, uh, 65%, believe that becoming rich and successful in America is not due to merit. And that has always kind of been the American dream that, you know, pull yourself up by your, your bootstraps. Anyone in America that, you know, puts their shoulder to the grindstone can make it and can live the American dream. It's a closed club of haves and have nots are, are not welcome. This study finds that that is the predominant thought, which would run counter to kind of the American dream ethos, if you will. And I suspect probably numbers were something like this or higher than this during the Gilded Age, which was an unprecedented era of reform in this country. Um, but I suspect this is higher than than probably normal, and it's troublesome for a couple reasons. I would also say, before we move off of the findings, that there is a political divide here that 
if you're you know a Democrat, you are more likely to subscribe to this view than if you're a Republican and through a partisan lens. And if you have money, you know, if you're wealthier, you are less likely to subscribe to this view that it's kind of rigged than if you're on the lower end of the economic scale. I don't think any of those findings are terribly surprising. It also shouldn't be surprising that the rhetoric of kind of a rigged system or the swamp or whatever you want to call it, the populist, that populist rhetoric we see emerging in both the right and left kind of tapping this vein, uh, whether it's Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. And so I think you see a political reaction to what this study finds is felt in the gut around the kitchen table of most Americans. And obviously there are different political prescriptions to that issue, but um, I think we're seeing it manifest, this feeling manifest in the political space. And our political leaders exacerbate it for their own, for their own purposes. But I think, you know, the, the, the truth is somewhere in the middle. I can, I can identify a dozen trust fund kids that think they've got there on their own, you know, what we call born on third base and they hit a home run and believe in their heart they've made it on their own. But then on the other side, you've got people that use that as a, as a crutch and a caveat, a cop out, not to get off the couch and get in the ring and swing because they don't think they have a chance. So in, in our political political system exacerbates those ill feelings and those those errors. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Franklin, from an industry, let's talk about the restaurant industry, from an industry who has spent ungodly amounts of time, energy, uh, and money trying to develop and procreate this narrative around an industry of opportunity. It seems like it's almost happening in a vacuum, like most people in a certain age and, and below, i.e. a disproportionate part of the restaurant workforce from this statistics doesn't believe that. Well, that's the challenge for employers is that you're right. I mean, that uh, the most Americans don't believe that, you know, they're living in a meritocracy where they can, regardless of advantages, climb the ladder. And that's the exact message that companies not only want to convey to workers to get them through the front doors, but um, also routinely convey to elected officials to argue against, you know, additional burdens or mandates that, you know, that's it's going to hurt workers. It's going to hurt workers opportunities. So, and we can, reality is one thing, and, you know, you mentioned that reality is somewhere in between, you know, but the perceptions are another thing, and that's what this study kind of gets to, is the perceptions of workers that policymakers are going to be reacting to. And uh, we've got a real challenge here. If we're going to go out arguing that you can't do this, that, or the other to us because it's going to reduce opportunity for workers, well, if no workers believe they have opportunity anyway, that the system is rigged, and policymakers are already reacting to that, then that is going to put us in a tough position. I do think that's why we have seen the Business Roundtable and other corporate brands pivoting kind of their their message and their approach and and how they, to have this sort of community-focused approach, to really be focused stone creating escalators within their company to show not not tell so to speak and to push back on some of this so maybe maybe the industry is talking to the wrong audience maybe instead of focusing on the public and and, and, and policymakers are, are you suggesting that maybe their time be better resources and time be better spent talking to their own employees I don't think that's inconsistent with what we said before you got to walk to walk before you can talk to talk and I I, I do think that if you're going to talk about being an escalator to the middle class, you need to be an escalator to the middle class. And 
I do think a lot of brands take that seriously, and, and I do think they're increasingly taking it seriously. You know, the apprenticeship program, the NRA is is working on, and a lot of employers are participating on, creating those kind of rungs in the ladder in a formalized way. That's all important stuff for a variety of different reasons, but it goes right towards combating this one person at a time that is presented with those opportunities. And I think we have to be deliberate in addressing that. So, you know, I'm wondering if, if this means that there's a I'm not going to use any brands. I'll just say, you know, big chain restaurant brand X. You know, is there reluctance to get into the the manager training program and and begin that ladder? Is there reluctance by a big swath of their employee base because they don't think it'll matter anyway? I'll only get picked to be manager if I'm drinking or golfing buddies with SVP X. Do they still feel like that's not an opportunity? Does a a kid that's five years into working for a QSR never really believe there's a path to being a franchisee. I mean, if those things are true, then that's the onus is on that brand to prove otherwise. Yeah, I mean, we're delving in the subjective here, but I think there's, you know, we have enough experience working with these workforce development programs that I think one of the biggest challenges, particularly for young people, that opportunity use segment is just having them be able to see over the horizon and understand that the opportunities are really close for them to grab hold of. It's just, I think that's one of the biggest mountains to climb is they just, is seeing how A, B, C, D gets them to the house and the car they want and the life they want. And that's that's been, I think, our personal experience with some of these workforce development programs is getting them to see the potential opportunities and, and how to reach them. So, I mean, this is a familiar theme we've talked about since kind of the rise of Bernie Sanders and this conversation around the income inequality. And, you know, since going back to Occupy Wall Street, you know, this this schism here that that's growing and how employers have to play a part in it. And if they don't, they risk government intervention. And so... That's it. Just another another podcast with another message to, you know, roll up your sleeves and, and try to address this. So, Franklin, interesting week on the uh, campaign trail. That really does kind of uh, affect the broader uh, business community, affects the stock market and confidence and so forth. And Joe Minum, baby. It's uh, Joe Mentum. I like that. So it looks like as the media was spending time, you know, creating drama and trying to beat Joe Biden down, uh, they are now in the process of building him back up for another rating sweep, it appears. And now Joe Biden appears to have gotten his sea legs. He is the front runner now in the Democratic primary after uh, Super Tuesday, has more delegates, has the momentum. What does that mean to the overall political environment? What does that mean to Main Street businesses like restaurants and retailers? Is there any effect? Is it? Is there less fear? We talked about the fear factor with Wall Street and Bernie Sanders. Are people going to be more secure that if, if Joe Biden is the nominee and if he becomes president, that it won't be crazy time? Um, yeah. I mean, the moderate wing coalescing around one candidate is good for business, period. End of story. So, but I can't believe Joe Biden's made a comeback. I mean, you said all along, you may have gotten off the, the train at one point, but you said all along Joe Biden was, the chickens would come home to roost. It's been an amazing turnaround, you know, but given his history, this is third run, he's gotten destroyed twice. You know, this is not over by any means. So the business community shouldn't be celebrating too much, but it's good to have a moderate candidate that is coalescing support. I would also say that... Joe Biden has always been a friend of labor unions and certainly is going to have a progressive Department of Labor and NLRB, et cetera. But I ain't going to get a look anything like Bernie Sanders, I can tell you that. So to the extent that operators should care or following this, you know, 
Bloomberg, uh, Mayor Pete, and Amy Klobuchar getting out and all endorsing Biden kind of coalesces that that lane, if you will, that moderate lane, which is going to uh, make Biden more competitive. And obviously, he's a front runner now. So, do you, do you think in a week from now, when we're taping our next podcast, that Elizabeth Warren will still be in the race, or will she have dropped out? I think Joe Biden wants her still in the race because I think she siphons votes off of Bernie, and I, I suspect she will be out after this next Super Tuesday 2. On the 17th? Or 18th, whatever yeah. it is. Well, we've just gotten a New York Times breaking news, Elizabeth Warren dropping out. Oh, wow. After getting destroyed in her home state. That's bad news for Biden her dropping out because that allows him to really start coalescing support on the left. So we have a two-person race now. I mean, Tulsi Gabbard, I guess, is still technically floating around out there. It's it's a two-person deal. So I always forget about Tulsi Gabbard. I wouldn't know if she walked into my office right now who she was, but you hear that name and she has two delegates and one delegate, two delegates. So American Samoa, she won that. So I thought Bloomberg won American Samoa. He took a delegate. She took a delegate. I think it's only two delegates, but Anyway, don't quote me on any of that. I think he, I know he she has four delegates. He got four delegates from American Samoa. Bloomberg did. So, pivoting. Not all races in 2020 that matter are at the <laughs> federal level. We've got a couple of big ballot initiatives on minimum wage, Florida, Ohio. And we've got some really interesting political activity in California as a result of AB5 we've been talking about forever. Franklin, you want to talk about some hardball politics going on in California? Some hardball politics going on in California. Yes, I do, Joe. There you go. We've talked about it before, but the big boys are playing big boy politics out in California. The Uber and the Lyfts of the world, after AB5 passed, they immediately started suing, and looks like they're locked into a legal strategy for the next decade, spending probably millions, tens of millions of dollars. They also announced that they're going to run the ballot initiative, $80 million-ish, for that. And then on top of that, they are starting to drop political money in the state and announced this week that they are putting $2 million into the campaign accounts of uh, the opponent of one of the key supporters of AB5. Now, that, my friend, is how you play politics. And this um, is a legislative district. This isn't the United States Senate. This isn't president. This is a, a legislative district. A state kind of legislative contest. Yeah. Which... You know, you assume they're going to spread money all across the state to challenge all these these folks that they they view as their greatest antagonist. So it'll be very interesting to see how Uber and Lyft have clearly decided that they're going to go to war in California and they're going to make sure there's a political price paid many times over for this AB5. And it will be interesting to see how everything kind of plays out there. No, and it's interesting. It, it, what's more interesting, again, we've, we've, we've talked about this over and over and over, but it's not only California legislators that are watching this. It's New York legislators and New Jersey legislators who are thinking about but slowing down on copycat legislation. They're like, oh, man, we're, gonna, we're really walking into a policy and now political hornet's nest on this stuff. And, you know, and that could be, I'm sure that's part of the thinking of, of Uber and Lyft and, you know, like-minded companies is just create, burn the house down in California so that no one else even goes down this road. And so maybe a lot of money, but uh, may save them a lot of money in the, in the end. So interesting, interesting, interesting. So, uh, so we're now down to Bernie versus Joe going back to the federal level and um, it will be exciting to see, but I do think at the end of the day, money comes from establishment. I think Joe's going to have access to money and I just don't think that Bernie's going to get over the next couple of months those the same level of those twenty five dollar 
hits from the Bernie folks that he did in, in four years ago. So I, I, to me, it just feels like he's running out of gas. It's amazing how momentum works in these uh, presidential races. And having worked on more than a few, when this was Biden's strategy all along. And play a long game. South Carolina was his firewall, and he had all these endorsements teed up. He was going to win in South Carolina, and then he was going to come out with these endorsements. And that was their game plan, clearly. And it worked. And I've been on presidential campaigns where we've had game plans that worked. I've been on ones where we had game plans they didn't work. And you could say the same thing for Mayor Pete. Like his campaign team, they put together a game plan that worked up until it didn't. But that is a really good feeling. It's a really bad feeling when it doesn't work. But Biden's strategy clearly worked. It's a rebound like it's never been seen before. And yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it goes forward. I do think that because the strategy paid off and worked and because he has so much momentum now that to your point, that money's going to follow. I do think at the end of the day, if I had to put my money on someone now at this moment, it's probably Joe Biden. But the question is... You know, what we've seen, I think part of it is Joe Biden, the, kind of the comeback is he's loosened up a bit. And Jim Clyburn told him he had to fight. He had to show fight, you know, and he's you see that now on the campaign trail. Sometimes he's actually just yelling into the mic is what it seems like. But he's loosening up on the campaign trail. Historically, well, when he's loosened up a little bit. That's, when he, that's double-edged sword. That's when he steps into That's the, when into Uncle Joe and Uncle Joe says something that's yeah. like a gaff. So... But I don't know how many gaffes you can say with Bernie Sanders that derail your campaign. Like in 1982, one little gaff would derail your presidential campaign. There's, it's just a different, different world now. So I, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see if he can stay away from a major gaff that derails things for him and gives Sanders kind of another opening. And then you guys are looking forward to Trump. And that's a whole and different I, thing. You know, and there's two things with, with, with Biden. You know, Biden spent his entire life. You know, he was first elected in 1972. Okay, so we're coming up on, you know, 50 years in public elected life. And 98% of his time in public elected life has been, if he's fighting anybody, it's fighting Republicans. He's never been majority leader. You know, he's never been that guy that's that's had to coalesce his own side, right? He obviously served as important committee chairman and so forth, but he's never been vying for Senate majority leader and all that kind of stuff. And so he's not really good at fighting as good at fighting his own team as he is at fighting the other team. And so if he can, to your point about Clyburn, if he just shed this, these attacks from Bloomberg and Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren, and you know, over time, he's much better at fighting what he considers the bad guy. He doesn't consider Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders the bad guy, right? Um, so having said that, it'll be interesting to see what his sea legs are. And of course, it's, it's interesting how different candidates are held to different standards. You know, the, the current occupant has dozens of gaffes a day that he's not held responsible for by the media or his voting, voting block. You know, and, and when Joe Biden does the inevitable gaffe, it'll be interesting to see the torrent that's going to come down and making fun of him and, and how we all, you know, how that all plays out. But I'm, I'm more interested in the fight. I, I think he will find his sea legs against Trump much better than finding his sea legs and how to... How do you beat? Uh, how do you pound a guy that you basically believe ninety eight percent of the same thing? You know, it's it's hard. He's just not good at that. Yeah. The last thing I'd say is we could obviously talk about this forever, but the last two debates, Joe Biden looked the best he's looked. He looked really shaky in some of the earlier debates, and um, he's looks as probably prepared as he has ever to get in the debate stage with Trump. I still think that's going to be a shock, but looks like there's a good chance we're going to see that matchup. So everybody, stay tuned.
It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the key legislative and regulatory developments that happened this week. And as always, we start with wages. Franklin, no aloha, Joe, but uh, what's going on in Hawaii? Yeah, the House just barely kind of made the crossover deadline. They've sent minimum wage legislation to the Senate for $13 an hour by 2024. Keeps the uh, tip credit at $0.75. Cents. So Senate's expect, expected to probably take this up. I, I can't imagine that we'll get through this legislative session. Why does without. everything go to the right to their deadlines in Hawaii? I mean, it's it's you can just hear the music, the soft, gentle padding of the waves on the beach. It's just there's not a lot of stress, man. Just it'll it'll happen in due time, right? Yeah, I like it. A little, little just zen, a little, little luau, zen. just this, hanging out on the beach. Just, just it'll happen, man. Don't don't you worry. But a little more intense place, Seattle. Uh, we've been watching this kind of dynamic for a while with these segmented wages. What's going on up there? Seattle became one of the first cities to pass a rideshare worker minimum wage, and others followed. And now they're expanding that to all gig economy workers. So there will, if this passes and and holds up to a court challenge, we'll have a fifteen dollar hour minimum wage plus expenses. No idea how that works for gig economy workers in the city of Seattle. And in the competition for attracting and retaining workers, uh, the grounds continues to shift. A big employer this week uh, made some big changes in the wage front. Well, it's Fargo announced that it's frontline workers. So think about call centers or think about the counter. Folks, tellers, tellers. Um, their starting wage will be between fifteen dollars and twenty dollars an hour, depending on the region of the country. So again, changing that, changing that wage base, uh, shifting to paid leave. Franklin just following up on the Corona piece we did earlier. Some activity by the governors of Kentucky and New York. And we mentioned it earlier, but it's worth mentioning again. Governor Bashir's basically called on private employers in the state to be flexible and to pay workers and not require them to come into work or not pressure them to come into work by not paying them. And Governor Cuomo is mandating that employers in his state pay workers that stay home sick due to coronavirus. This all, we had a late breaking item. U.S. Senate, federal Senate Democrats have sent a letter to the Business Roundtable, the Chamber of Commerce, Manufacturers Association, basically saying, look, we have this coronavirus thing going on. Y'all need to be flexible in your sick leave policies and allow workers to stay home, work from home, or if they're sick, still pay them. You know, now now is the time to step forward and step up. And this is not your typical kind of lefties. This is Mark Warner who's leading this charge, who is entrepreneur, CEO, business guy. Dead center of the on the political spectrum and, you know, a well respected voice in in and out of DC is is kind of a moderate a moderating influence on in the politics of the day. So we said in that segment that we're gonna continue, this drumbeat's gonna continue and here it does. Uh, Franklin, switching to back to the states in Minnesota, the nation's only split legislature. Yeah, so the Democrats in the House have advanced a paid family leave mandate twenty four weeks. It is uh, more or less... So it's passed out of the House. Yeah, and it's it's more or less dead on arrival in the Senate, which is led by Republicans. So anyway, everybody gets to hit the campaign trail saying they, they did something this, this session. And um, speaking of doing stuff, no, nothing's ever dull in, the, in, the, uh, in New Hampshire. Paid leave on the agenda this week, competing bills, governor's bill, legislature's bill. I doubt either one gets through the pipeline. I had to read this twice three times, the governor marched over to the state capitol and testified in committee 
on his own bill, which is a voluntary paid leave program. Democrats are pushing a mandatory paid leave program, and they have failed to secure veto-proof majorities for that in the past. And so there's a lot of positioning going on right now. This will probably be a conversation that continues over, you know, the next year into Election Day. And very interesting to see the governor going and forcefully arguing for his version of the plan. But we'll see how things kind of shake out in New Hampshire. And the governor, like his father, the former White House chief of staff, they are both stubborn as mules, those Sindhu News, and uh, not letting coronavirus keep him, you know, deflecting his posture at all and marching, as you say, across the Capitol to testify. I think it's pretty pretty notable. You don't see that every day. Uh, and Franklin, one of the one of the major employers in our industry, uh, Chipotle, made some big paid leave news this week. Yeah, the unlimited paid time off for senior staff members. So essentially what they're saying is you can work from home, you can work from work, you just, just get your work done. We're not going to have you clocking in and out and showing up at the office at 8.30 to 5 p.m. This is a test. This is a test in a few markets, right? Yeah, and uh, we'll see how it works. Switching to labor policy, a little bit of um, musical chairs at both the EEOC and NLRB. Yeah, they've had unfilled positions there for a while, and so we have the announcement from the White House of appointments to both Democrat and Republican seats in at both the EEOC and the NLRB, and it looks like from you know, the bios, uh, that these are pretty much what you would expect. And in fact, the NRB both are have previously held seats are being reappointed, so they're familiar faces, but one will be advocating kind of one side and one the other, and obviously the Republican majorities own both at the moment. So uh, one of the m- more notable brands and friends of ours here at uh, Align, uh, Restaurant Brands International, signed a big settlement with the California Attorney General this week. Indeed, and this is one of these multi-state settlements. Um, it, you know, there's... I think it's like 15 or 20 states that are participating in these multi-state settlements. And essentially what RBI is saying is they will no longer include no-poach policies in their franchise or franchisee agreements. And, you know, this is they're just the latest in a long string of companies that have that have signed settlements with the California and or the Washington AG. Yeah, I was going to say Ferguson charge. and Washington's kind of been the, the ringleader on this. California doesn't like to be outdone in, no. in this space. Sure. So I think it's a good move. Uh, no, no reason to, to, to keep banging that drum. Scheduling, Franklin. Uh, Rhode Island's got a little bit of a bill up there. Yeah, we, we've... I think we talked about it when we had maybe Dale on, but uh, there's a scheduling bill floating around out there. I'm not sure it's moving, but, you know, we, we tend to keep track of these scheduling bills whenever they're popping up all over the country. And who knows? Connecticut moves, you know, maybe you get a little little wind in the sails, a little momentum, and, and you see that that pick up as well. So something we'll keep an eye out for. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's those that's the part of the country where these bills get a lot of traction very quickly, but as as we talked about when Dale was on the on the pod, you know, there's the, the dynamics of Providence, uh, the capital being in Providence, Providence being one of the great restaurant cities in the country. Dale, I don't know if there's any state legislature that that looks like that politically that's more astute on pressure pushes and pulls and the pressures on the restaurant business model and no one's done a better job explaining it to their legislators than she has and so i would be kind of surprised this made it through not necessarily killing the bill but having legislators understand what's workable and what's not what's reasonable and what makes sense and and sometimes when you start getting logic and reason involved in these scheduling bills they kind of implode on their own weight so we'll see what happens up there this is something we haven't seen in a while franklin in the activist space i remember you know 
five, ten years ago, it seemed like every couple of weeks, some notable Hollywood actor, Danny Glover, comes to mind and some others were making these documentary films, banging away on this, that, or the other with regard to the industry. And we haven't seen one in a while, but we got we got a new one coming out in a few weeks. And I don't know that I would even flag this, but AOC is playing a prominent role in this film. So it may draw more eyeballs since she is kind of the darling of, of the left and has a supersized... Uh, if I can use that term, kind of public profile. So Waging Change is the name of this documentary film. It's being released March 22nd. AOC is featured. Obviously, she was a bartender server before, you know, she ran for Congress. And uh, Rock is Restaurant Opportunity Center is a big part of this. And their founder, uh, Sarun Jairaman, as well as Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, all of the kind of typical characters. So anyway, the whole the whole thing is... You're gonna I like the scorn on your face when you say typical characters. Your facial expression yeah. is phenomenal. Yeah. So they follow around these restaurant workers, and basically they're advocating for the elimination of the tipped wage. So anyway, it will be screening March 22nd in San Francisco. Surprise, surprise. So, you know, if you're in if you're in the area, grab a premier ticket and head on over there. Franklin, um, you said that AOC was a, a darling of the left. Are, are we ever going to be darlings of anything? Am I the darling of anything? Are you the darling? Are we ever going to be darlings? I feel like I'm a darling of many, many. I just, um, I, I want, and if I probably ever retire. Probably starting with Tamara Coley, but. but if I have a retirement know. dinner, I want somebody to call me the darling of something. It just, I don't really even care what it is. I just, the term's awesome. You're probably the darling of the, who is it that oversees the golf course and like checks you in and. The star of the superintendent, the pro shop. Yeah, you're, you're the darling of the pro shop. I like that. I can I can work with that. I yeah. can work with that. Yeah. Franklin, going back to uh, talking trash, New Jersey, big bill passed out of the state senate just yesterday. Yeah, um, would prohibit the distribution of and sale of single use plastic and paper bags, as well as um, styrofoam, basically the whole kit and caboodle. And we talked about this last session as a carryover bill. So it's moving now and. You know, New Jersey has a ton of plastic bag bans at the local level in the books, like a ton. It's probably one of the more active states outside of California in that category. So this is fertile ground for, and we know what the New Jersey legislature's been doing lately. So I would actually be surprised if something doesn't make it through, which means it's incumbent on in the industry to go in and make sure that to the, to the extent something goes through, that it's the details of it, the component parts are somewhat workable. Because, you know, I just would be surprised if it if it doesn't pop out of the process. Well, a busy week, and, and we can predict uh, that next week will be not only a busy week, but be heavily tilted toward reactions from policymakers and opinion leaders on coronavirus. We've seen two governors, as we've noted earlier, Kentucky and, and, and New York come out in the last 48 hours. And I suspect by the time we do this pod again next week, we'll see a lot more governors getting engaged in this issue in a lot more ways. So uh, stay tuned, and uh, especially on that particular issue. So that's it for the scorecard this week. As always, you can go to aligntopitems.com and and get up to speed and uh, we'll have more for you next week. All right, Jens, another another week, another pod. Carson, how do you vote on the breakfast challenge? Look, both of these were awesome and it's just another week where we got just a table littered with breakfast goodness, but I'm going to give uh, I'm going to give a thumbs up to Wendy's. I, we we love Dunkin Donuts and if I think if we'd had the coffee included as part of the challenge, I might have leaned toward Dunkin because I love the Dunkin coffee, but we're talking just breakfast sandwiches. I'm going to give the nod to Wendy's. Franklin. Well, I nabbed a Dunkin' coffee, so that was that may have pushed me over the edge. I'm going to stick with the old standby um, Dunkin' Donuts. 
new kid on the block. I appreciate your game. You, you brought it, but but I'm going to go with Duncan. So you're the you're the tiebreaker, Mr. Keith. Second week in a row, yeah. tiebreaker. I don't know if I relish this, but I think I do, as a matter of fact. But listen, as I said at the open, I you know nobody loves Duncan more than we do. We've been having Duncan every Friday in this office for ten years. But again, on the on the sandwich front, I just uh, having it on a bagel just doesn't do it for me. And I love I love cold cut sandwiches on a bagel, but not breakfast sandwiches. So I'm, I'm going to give the new kid on the block the edge and a uh, little different taste in there, a little 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 something different than, than we've had before. So um, I'm going to go with Wendy's and break the tie. How is, uh, you've got some plans for watching a little golf today. How's that going to, how, well, how's, how's, I don't have to eat lunch anymore. <laughs> I, I don't even know if I'm ready for dinner, but I'm going to walk this off. I'm going to the Honor Palmer Invitational here in Orlando and see some golf. And I, I don't know, I may have a chilled yeast-based golf beverage, maybe even two, who knows? Who knows what happens out there? It's be exciting day. For exciting exciting day. So uh, I'll be walking off my breakfast and uh, happy as a clam, but uh, we'll see y'all next week. Thank you